0: Hey, are you here? If you're here, babe, won't you just say so? Let me hear you. Got to know, got to hear that you're here. Are you listening to this episode of the Paul Leslie Hour? Yes, you are. And thank you for tuning in. We have an interview today from the archives. That means we're searching the way back machine. With Mr. Bruce Kapler. We want to make our interview with this great horn player accessible to you everywhere. Spotify, Apple, iHeartRadio, you name it. The extremely talented saxophonist Bruce Kaplan has joined your host, Paul Leslie, to talk about his colorful musical life. Bruce was a member of the Paul Schaeffer's CBS Orchestra starting way back in 93. He left the show in 2012, now, Bruce Kapler also sings and plays several instruments, including soprano sax, alto sax, tenor sax, baritone sax, and bass saxophones, and flute, and clarinet and recorder, keyboards, and percussion. Mm-hmm. The list of musicians Bruce Kapler has performed with sounds like a like a who's who of popular music including Paul Anka, Tony Bennett, Natalie Cole, Harry Connick Jr., George Benson, Buckwheat, Zydeco, Glenn Campbell, 50 Cent, Buster Rhymes, Ray Charles, and the Dave Matthews Band. But don't forget James Brown, Chuck Berry, Randy Newman, Brian Wilson. Wow, the list just seems to go on and on. Hey, we wanted to say that we appreciate you listening in wonder if you'd maybe support independent media and the spoken word by visiting www.thepaulesley.com support. And there, you can give to yourself and to others the gift of stories. And we thank each and every listener and every patron. Hey, I got an idea. Let's listen to that interview with Bruce Kapler. In fact, Let's listen
1: together. It is with great pleasure that we welcome Bruce Kepler of the CBS Orchestra. So first of all, thanks so much for taking the time to do this interview with us. Oh, It's my pleasure. Thanks for asking. My first question, who is Bruce Kepler? Uh, How far back do you want to go?
2: (laughs) I can tell you that the current and for the last 16 years I've been the uh, saxophonist, uh, vocalist, um, flautist, so, utility infielder uh, in the horn section on uh, late show with David Letterman. We're uh, going into our 16th year at this point, and I sort of started as a, um, an added musician back in uh, 1988 on the old late-night show on NBC. I did about 30 shows for them over there, uh, as well as arranging um, the last uh, Letterman big uh, Radio City 10th anniversary special.
1: So where were you born? I was
2: born on Long Island, on the north shore of Long Island, uh, in a town called Huntington.
1: And what music did you hear growing up? Oh, God. You know, I heard all
2: sorts of music. My parents, we had the uh, Victrola, as it was called. They would play everything from Mario Lanza to um, Honky Tonk piano players to Jerry Lewis sings to uh, the soundtrack from Camelot. It's just a real wide variety of stuff. Did you have a favorite? No, it was just. I my earliest recollections were just um, sitting there and uh, enthralled with the sound that was coming out of this uh, this hi fi. I mean, I started studying music at a really early age, so it sort of went hand in hand. I mean, my you know conscious recollection I started studying music when I was five, and so it's hard to sort of separate the two.
1: When did you realize you were going to be a musician?
2: It was pretty early on. I had a, a, a wonderful teacher when I was in elementary school. His name was Jack Carmen. He was a great guy with a great laugh, and he was really a, a quite proficient musician. He was a trombone player, and he also played an amazing clarinet. He was really into Dixieland music. He was also into gigging all the time, as well as being you know, head of the music department. So it was kind of exciting because he would come in and, you know, we'd would, we would sit and he would tell me about his gig last night, you know, and he'd be all excited about it. So And, and I thought that was just, wow, this is, this is great. This is what I want to do.
1: Can you remember your first public performance?
2: I would imagine my first public performance was an elementary school band concert, very much as they are today. I guess I was in the, the fourth grade. Yes, nine years old. Don't ask me what we played. I can, uh, and I can only imagine how we sounded. I had had an, an advantage going into into elementary school, having again studied music privately for three or four years. There was a fellow in town. Uh, his name was Jerry Petrie, and he was also on staff at Juilliard. And he had a little uh, garage studio behind his house, and he would give lessons. And I started studying the recorder with him um, when I was five. You know what? I still have those lesson books today. And it's amazing to see that he had a five-year-old or a six-year-old doing sight transposition uh, and all the stuff that he had going on. It's a a big step up advantage for me going to elementary school where kids mostly are seeing instruments for the first time and uh, getting to handle them and play.
1: So tell us about when you were touring with the Vegas Style Show Band. A friend of mine
2: from high school in my high school band, rock band, called me up and said, I'm doing this band, and we're supposed to travel, and it's going to be playing hotels, and it's going to be playing all this and that, and why don't you come down and do it? I had always been a vocalist, you know, in our, in high school and all throughout, and so it was just that sort of thing. We had a big green truck. We would load it to the gills with our personal gear and our, our equipment, and we would follow behind in our cars, and we traveled the entire country for about three years, and no, maybe two and a half years. It was the kind of thing where you go. We would go to a hotel in the, in in New Orleans and stay in the French Quarter in a hotel for three or four weeks and play their um, their lounge, you know. And we had an act, um, and we had outfits, and we had steps, and we, you know, it was that sort of thing. We actually did play in Vegas at the Old Stardust, but it was fun, and it was my first road experience, and. It was a little rough. Uh, uh, I mean, just the traveling part of it, the rest of it was pretty pretty comfortable. And making money playing music, that was uh, that was the big deal.
1: You mentioned that you were born in Long Island. What got you uh, interested in moving to New York City? I think you, you mentioned it was the Lower East Side.
2: When I had finished that two and a half years uh, sort of touring with that Vegas show band, some friends had um, found a loft on the Lower East Side and they were moving in and they said we think you ought to come in and it would probably be a great thing for the three of us to live here and share it all and you know get our careers happening. Uh, it was a bit of a culture shock again having been at that time when I was a teenager uh, really and, uh, and making pretty decent money and having no expenses whatsoever to going to the starving artist lifestyle that ensued after moving to the Lower East Side but it was just an amazing, amazing experience. I have to add that when I moved to the Lower East Side, it was was, uh, in 1976, right at the uh, bicentennial. I think folks who know the Lower East Side now, it's quite different um, animal. It's full of clubs and, and chic restaurants and stuff. And, and it was still really pretty dangerous to live down there when we, when we moved down there.
1: I understand that in addition to being a musician for a time, you were also a record producer?
2: Uh, yes, did uh, do a stint as a record producer, and I had uh, been asked by a publishing company to produce a single for um, one of their artists. It just happened to come out really well. I was able to uh, sell it to Mercury Records, and it was released, and as most things in those days, it's all about the amount of promotion money that's put around it. But, but through that, I met... Uh, Some people at a company who were really making a lot of money putting out records, and uh, I was sort of the guy who did the pet projects of, you know, principals of the company. They were guys that I would have never chosen to record in particular, but uh, it was a great experience to do that. And we got to work in fantastic studios with some guys who became quite famous as, as engineers and producers.
1: Tell us about meeting Mr. Paul Schaefer.
2: My first meeting with him, it was a phone meeting. I'd been playing in New York with the Toronto player, Al Ches, who is also in place on the, uh, on the uh, show with us. And uh, Will Lee, the bass player on the show, um, would sub for our bass player once in a while. And I guess at that time, uh, Paul had uh, recorded an album and was about to go out on, uh, on the show dark weeks and stuff um, and weekends and promote and do concerts. And their original plan was to just hire horns wherever uh, wherever they were. And uh, Will prevailed upon him. He said, listen, you know, I play with these two guys, It's sax and trombone player, and these guys sound like four horns together. You've got to hear them. you got to hear them. And I didn't even know this happened. Uh, interesting side, like this band, that uh, this Latin funk band that we were playing, and Alan and I um, were hired by Latoya Jackson to um, be her backup band for a... Uh, world premiere at one of the Trump casinos in Atlantic City. So we were rehearsing with her in one room and uh, unbeknownst to me, Paul and his band were rehearsing in another room and they sort of, I guess they stuck their heads in and, and took a listen and liked what they heard because um, a couple of days later I got a call from uh, his road manager and said, well, uh, Paul would like you to do this. Uh, we're going to start rehearsing in a couple of weeks and he gave me details and all this other stuff. And before I ever got, we ever started those rehearsals. Paul called me up at, at home and said, um, "We have an artist coming on the show. That her record that has horns on it, and so I would love you to uh, write out the horn parts, and you and Al come in and back her up with us, and also pick five tunes that you'd, uh, you guys would like to play, you know, that we'd all know, and uh, and sit in all night." So that was the first experience. I met him when I walked into this, into Studio Six A at the Rockefeller Center.
1: What was going through your mind when you officially were told that you got the gig of being a part of the CBS Orchestra?
2: As I said, i had done some 30 shows and a lot of work for the show and was really familiar with everybody around it. And when they were moving to CBS, I had sort of made a pitch to Paul about going over with them and being a utility entry. Because I, I can play some guitar, I play uh, keyboards, I can I sing, I play percussion, and my point to him with that was that it wouldn't necessarily be uh, always a saxophone all the time. Again, more like a utility infielder. So the meeting, I thought the meeting went well, and he called me a week or so later and said, You know, I think I, I'm going to go a different direction. I want to try getting a second guitarist and another keyboard player. I thought that was sort of the, the uh, extent of my career on the Letterman show at that point. Paul and I we were both nominated for Emmys for that 10th anniversary special. So I, I just sort of said, well, you know, I guess that was my highlight of my Letterman career. And I just happened to, uh, you know, in those days we had beepers and, you know, no one had handheld cell phones. Uh, I had a phone in the car. And I was out somewhere and I, I, my beeper went off and I had this number. This number looks very familiar to me. I better go and call. So I went and called and, and it was Paul. This was about maybe the 40th show or so that they had done for CBS. And he said to me, we're going to have Natalie Cole on the show. We're going to add uh, a few horns and uh, I'd love to have you come in and do it. And I said, great. So I figured, well, there we go. I'll be sort of called on occasion to do this again. And, and we talked for a little while longer and he said to me, you know, and the band just, you know, it's just not working out the way I really wanted it to. At that point, I sort of, was frozen stiff in my seat and he had mentioned well you know maybe I don't know what we'll do maybe we'll have you come in and play a regular night once a week or every other week or however it's going to work but let's see what happens and uh, we went in and did that Natalie Cole show and um, Tom Malone and I were involved in that the trombone player on the show he said well why don't you come back the next night and the next night and the next night and I guess it was also that Dave liked the horns and the way the band sounded with the horns. So. It wasn't just like you've got the gig, here's a contract. It would sort of like eased into it over a a period of four months or so, but it was we just kept on every Friday you know, they would say, Well, come back Monday and then we knew that we had another week, so it went along that way.
1: Playing on the Dave Letterman show, there have been so many great acts that I've seen perform on there. Was there one in particular that made you flip out when you found out they were gonna be there?
2: Oh, there's so many. There's so many. Uh, You know, getting to play with um, just, you know, the icon of the industry. I mean, one of the ones that comes to mind because I I think I might have mentioned to you earlier that uh, this past weekend, uh, um, Levin Helm had invited me to go up and and play with his band uh, at one of his Midnight Rambles at his barn studio home in Woodstock. And that was a fantastic experience. I've always been a huge fan from time I was in high school of the band and of him so I guess one of the, one of the great times was the first time that they appeared on the show and I got to meet them and and play with them and uh, to meet Garth Hudson and have Garth Hudson explain to me how he liked the horns to be that was really great yeah it's really impossible to sort of name one in particular I mean you could just go through the whole roster of people who appeared on the show it's all been amazing
1: Well, tell us about what the experience is like being the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame house band.
2: That's correct. We're doing two spectacular anniversary shows, 25th anniversary shows at Madison Square Garden at the end of October, which will include all the obligatory superstars um, from Clapton to you name it. And what uh, we will be doing as the um, sort of the house band that we've been for since the beginning of the Hall of Fame, we'll be backing up a sort of a soul review. I think it's about a 40-minute set. A lot of people and the uh, headlined One Night by Aretha Franklin, which will be amazing. And I've gotten to play with her before, and that was amazing to play the saxophone solo on respect with having Aretha turn around to stare at you while you're playing. It was a really wonderful experience and on the other night the review will be headlined by stevie wonder and that's another amazing experience we he was part of the closing ceremonies for the olympics in atlanta a number of years ago and uh, so he we were sort of the house band for that as well and at the play with stevie those two nights are just going to be amazing amazing musical experiences
1: let me ask you, and I hope you don't mind me asking this question, is there someone in the band that you feel closer to than the others? Well,
2: we're a pretty tight-knit group, and I would, I would say there's a certain bond between Al Chaz and myself because we've been together playing as like a, a unit for over 25 years, starting in, you know, playing in the Jersey Shore bands. It's funny because the guys that are in, uh, in Conan's band, in the um, now the Tonight Show band, We all played together, Mark Pender and uh, Richie Lubamba Rosenberg, we had a band called Lubamba and the Hubcats and we played all the big beach bars along New Jersey Shore for years together. So Al and Will, you know, Will is the guy who got me on this gig, you know, and is always uh, a special place where he's an amazing person, amazing musician. The kind of musician you meet in life that barely ever see having to break a sweat, no matter what is called for, no matter what technical prowess is called for in the music that you're that you're performing. That it couples with probably the deepest groove that you know you can imagine. I remember seeing him one of the first times years and years ago with the Twenty Fourth Street Band, which was with Hiram Bullock, and and just going, wow! I know why this guy is one of the highest paid musicians in New York because. He puts down a groove so deep that you'd need a ladder to climb out of it. There have been a couple of times Anton was um, maybe playing with a feature band in the center of the stage and wouldn't have time to come back and and play drums where I sat down and played drums. And man, having Will playing bass while I played drums, it was just so easy. It was amazing. So I, I feel close to those guys. I feel close to all of them, really. I mean. Sid McGinnis, the guitarist, I mean, he and I have, you know, been friends for a really, really long time. And uh, well, all of it. Anton and I play golf together all the time. It's hard to say, but I would just say Al, because, I mean, I've, we've been friends
1: the longest. What is in the future of Bruce Kepler?
2: In the immediate future, it's um, another three years, um, happily, uh, with the CBS Orchestra on the show with David Letterman that's what we're looking at now. And as you can well imagine, I mean, it's, it's fun to go out and play and do other things, but it's impossible to really plan a future beyond that because, you know, who knows what will be going on at that point? You know, who do you talk to to say, well, you know, I would love to go on tour with you, but you know, and I'll be available in three years, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So it's a little, it's a little far in advance to make those kind of plans.
1: When Dave calls it quits, I swear I'll cry.
2: <laughs> we all will. And not just for the final curtain of, of what has been an amazing run and the absolute best job that any musician could ever have, but also because of just Dave himself. He would really uh, shy from the accolades, but he is the voice of a generation, and he is uh, sort of like America's conscience, and people look to him and his opinion, when forming their own opinions about certain events that happen in the world. You know, he's sort of the the talk show standard bearer, which has nothing to do with ratings. It has to do with the the metal of the man.
1: Wow, very well put. I have two final questions that I ask all the guests. Uh, This one sounds kind of lighthearted, but I always find it reveals something about the person. What is your all-time favorite meal?
2: Well, see, now I'm a cook. I'm not, I won't say that I'm a cook, let's, let's make it a verb. I cook, I enjoy cooking. I'd have to say, I make a really mean osso buco. It is one of my favorites. I make it on holidays for my family and they're always looking forward to it. It is uh, slow cooked veal shanks in a sauce that uh, comprised of um, some vegetables and uh, tomato sauce and it's usually served with um, risotto which is an Italian rice dish. I'm not Italian at all, but I just happen to love that particular meal.
1: Well, my one final question for you. This broadcast is going out all over the world thanks to the powers of technology. So what would you like to say to all the people that are listening in?
2: I would like to have them spend more time listening and enjoying music and less time at some of the more destructive things that are going on in the world
1: very sound advice. All right. Well, thanks so much, Bruce. It's been a pleasure. It's
0: been mine as well. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to com. That's thepauleslie.com. Click on Support the Show, and thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primorano, The Entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primorano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me! The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next
1: time on the Paul Leslie Hour.